Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Y'all, my friends Howard and Jessica of Plotting Through the Presidents have just started their new season and you need to go check it out. The first episode is called The John Adams Diet. And no, before you get any ideas, this ain't a health podcast based on the eating habits of our nation's leaders. It is a deeply researched, albeit humorous, storytelling show that explores the lesser-known tales of the early presidents, the founders, and even their families. From the real reason Alexander Hamilton and John Adams hated each other, to the truth behind Ben Franklin's naughty reputation— They've even covered stuff as wild as the story of John Quincy Adams and the mole people to Winston Churchill's nude White House encounter with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, the Bell Witch makes an appearance when they're talking about old hickory. So y'all, go follow Plotting Through the Presidents to plot along with Howard and Jess and check out plodpod.com for links to your favorite podcast app and of course to dive into their past bingeable seasons. That's plodpod.com. Hey y'all, we're off this week, so I've got something a little different for you today a sneak peek into another podcast that I bet you are going to enjoy. It's called History Daily, and it's hosted by the one and only Lindsey Graham of American Scandal and one of my favorite podcasts of all time, American History Tellers. Now, as you can tell from the title, History Daily is released daily, or at least every weekday, and it takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on that day in history. Now, whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy, or to celebrate that 20th day in July of 1969 when mankind reached the moon, History Daily is here to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world, one day at a time. And y'all, I love Lindsay's storytelling, so if you're stuck in traffic or bored at work, wherever you are, you can check out History Daily to remind you that something incredible happened on this day, making it historic. All right, now, rather than play y'all that episode about the moon landing or or something off topic, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to play two episodes of History Daily that I think might match up with some of what you've heard here in Southern Gothic before. And I think it'll make a good companion to better understanding some of the ghost stories I've told in the past. The first one is about an event that happened on March 23rd, 1806, the return of Lewis and Clark. That's right, y'all have heard about the mystery surrounding Meriwether Lewis's death right here on my show. So why not dive a little bit deeper into how he got famous in the first place, right? Then after that, I'm going to play you a little something from the Civil War. The Great Locomotive Chase, which we've actually referenced a few times over the years, but haven't really gone into much detail about what happened. So I'll let Lindsay do that for you. Of course, if you enjoy either of these episodes, be sure to check out History Daily today. It's on all your favorite podcatchers. And of course, I'll put a link in the show notes. I hope y'all dig it.
It's December 20th, 1803, in New Orleans. Behind the closed door of a meeting room, three men prepare to seal one of the greatest real estate deals in history. Commanding General of the U.S. Army, James Wilkinson, watches as Louisiana's French governor, Pierre Clément de la Sarthe, signs a document that will officially transfer the Louisiana Territory to the United States. The signing done, the men rise to exchange handshakes. Wilkinson watches as Louisiana's last French governor shakes the hand of William C.C. Claiborne, Louisiana's first American governor. With this exchange, the Louisiana Purchase is finally complete. Wilkinson walks to the nearest window and draws the curtain to peer out at the crowd gathering outside. He watches as a color guard pulls down the French flag and raises the U.S. flag in its place. Then, as Wilkinson opens the window, he hears cheers erupt from the city's American settlers. Wilkinson can't help but notice the grim faces on the city's Spanish and French residents in the crowd. They're not sure what's coming, and Wilkinson isn't smiling either. Though President Thomas Jefferson himself entrusted Wilkinson to take possession of the Louisiana Territory, Wilkinson does not support American expansion. He doesn't say it out loud. He keeps his true opinion secret because he's a spy serving the Spanish Empire. And today's landmark achievement for the growth of American territory spells trouble for the nation he has secretly pledged his allegiance to. At 530 million acres, the Louisiana Purchase will double the size of the United States. But the Purchase won't end Jefferson's expansionist ambitions. In just a few months, news of Thomas Jefferson's newest exploratory undertaking will reach Wilkinson. A double agent will immediately warn the Spanish of Jefferson's upcoming westward venture an expedition that will send Americans all the way to the Pacific Ocean. An expedition led by two men, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, who will begin their return from exploring the West on March 23, 1806. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 23rd, 1806, the return of Lewis and Clark. It's January 18th, 1803, 11 months before France transfers the Louisiana Territory to the United States. President Thomas Jefferson sits at a desk in the White House, a blank sheet of paper before him. Jefferson's mind races as he prepares to come up with a way to finance an expedition to the Pacific Ocean. For decades, Jefferson read about the Western frontier and dreamed of its exploration, hoping to build what he calls an empire of liberty. Now Jefferson feels like his vision might finally be coming to fruition. Negotiations are underway to purchase the Louisiana Territory from France, and so are plans to venture beyond that territory. Recently, Jefferson requested permission from Spain for a scientific expedition to cross Spanish territory. Spain rejected the request, but Jefferson remains undeterred. The expedition will go ahead with or without Spain's approval. All Jefferson needs is money. And so he sits trying to craft the perfect words that will help him accomplish his goal. Jefferson must be careful how he phrases this request to Congress. He knows the Constitution doesn't give Congress the right to finance exploration outside the nation's borders, so he needs to frame this delicately. Jefferson decides to describe the enterprise as a step towards extending commerce, 
The expedition, he writes, will make allies of Western native tribes, uncover the best trade routes, and reveal the continent's geography, all in the interests of commerce. Jefferson is confident that no one in Congress will have a reason to oppose such an expedition unless they know about Spain's refusal to approve it. So Jefferson decides to withhold that information in his letter to Congress. Instead, Jefferson tells Congress that Spain will regard the expedition as a scientific pursuit and will take no issue. Satisfied, Jefferson hands the letter off to a messenger who delivers it to his colleagues in Congress. In the end, Jefferson's deception works. Congress approves the request. Jefferson will then appoint his personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis, to be the leader of an expedition company they will call the Corps of Discovery. Lewis will bring on board an old friend named William Clark. Together, the two frontiersmen will serve as the expedition's co-captains. And on May 14, 1804, after many months of preparation, these two men and their 45-person crew will depart from St. Louis, heading up the Missouri River to begin their long journey west. It's August 1, 1804, in the Spanish territory of New Mexico, three months after Lewis and Clark began their westward trek. Atop his horse, Pedro Vial looks beyond him at the 52 soldiers, mercenaries, and allied Native Americans awaiting his orders to leave Santa Fe. He runs through his mental checklist, making sure no critical supply or person is missing. Vial knows the journey ahead will be a long one. A French explorer and frontiersman, Vial works for the Spanish government as a guide and interpreter. Roles informed by years of living among the Comanche and Wichita Indians. But today his job is a little different. Vial has been selected to lead an armed expedition to track down Lewis and Clark. Five months ago, word came from a Spanish spy named General James Wilkinson that the departure of a U.S. expedition to the Pacific was imminent. To Spain, the expedition does not feel scientific. It feels imperialist. Spanish officials surmise that a successful return by Lewis and Clark could put a target on the territory that Spain has occupied for centuries. And so they've decided to put a stop to it, selecting Pedro Vial as the man for the job. After finishing his mental inventory, Vial signals his men to begin their pursuit of the American expedition. One month and 600 miles later, Vial and his men finally reach a large Pawnee Indian settlement in present-day Nebraska. Soon, Vial begins giving presents to the local chiefs. Part of his job is to endear the tribes to the Spanish while instilling fear in them of the land-hungry Americans. Vial hopes the chiefs will be able to steer them towards the Lewis and Clark expedition. And eventually, Vial learns that a group of American traders were in the area two weeks ago. But it's anyone's guess where they are now. Unable to predict Lewis and Clark's location, Vial returns to New Mexico empty-handed. But the Spanish will not give up on stopping Lewis and Clark. Vial will lead several more attempts to intercept the core of discovery. But all will be unsuccessful. By the time Vial and his men arrive back in New Mexico, Lewis and Clark will be many miles north, beginning construction on a wintertime fort near the villages of the Mandan and Hidatsta Indians. It's in these villages that Lewis and Clark will find a fateful addition to the core of discovery, a girl named Sacagawea. Audio fiction fans, y'all need to go check out The Sprouting, an eldritch horror of an actual play podcast set in an apocalyptic future where eldritch plants have taken over, magical bargains twist the fabric of reality, and each survivor struggles to trust their own senses as they try to see their goals through to their ends. This podcast features an international cast, original scoring, and immersive sound design. In fact, y'all, here's a quick preview of The Sprouting. 
Available now anywhere you get your podcasts. With your long forgotten name, we call upon you. We call upon you. In the words of the unspeakable language, we call upon you. We call upon you. By the spilt blood of the wicked who walk upon this world sprouting the words of false idols, we call upon you. We call upon you. On the land of the dead harvest, that which brings the earth itself into your service, Yamal, we call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. Yamal calls upon you. The Sprouting, a Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast by Blighthouse Studio. Find us on your podcatcher of choice. It's November 4th, 1804, in present-day North Dakota, six months into the Corps of Discoveries expedition. Captain Meriwether Lewis inspects a handful of soil, making note of its properties before returning it to the earth. Lewis jots down a final note before closing his journal filled with information from President Jefferson. Satisfied with the day's observations, Lewis is ready to find whatever warmth he can at the expedition's new campground. After six months of traveling the Missouri River, the Corps of Discovery began construction on a fort just two days ago. Fortunately for the expedition, the Hidatsa and Mandan tribes have been eager to establish peace. Lewis is therefore thankful that this is the place where they will spend the long months ahead. As Lewis nears the entrance to the encampment, an unfamiliar man stops him. He introduces himself as Toussaint Charbonneau. He's a French-Canadian trader who lives in the nearby Hidatsa villages, and he has a proposition for Lewis. Charbonneau wants to be hired as an interpreter for the expedition. Lewis takes a moment to mull this proposal over. They are in need of interpreters, but Charbonneau has nothing new to offer him. They already have a man who speaks Hidatsa and French, but Charbonneau insists he has more talents than that. Lewis's ears perk up as he hears that Charbonneau's wife is a Shoshone Indian. The Shoshone tribe lives in the Rocky Mountains and has many horses. Lewis knows horses are exactly the thing the Corps of Discovery will need to take their baggage across the mountains. And to get horses from the Shoshone, they will need someone who can speak the language. Soon, Lewis will meet Charbonneau's wife, Sacagawea, a heavily pregnant 16-year-old girl. In three months, Lewis will aid in the delivery of Sacagawea's son. And just two months after giving birth, with an infant on her back, Sacagawea will set off with the Corps of Discovery as the expedition's only woman. It's the morning of August 17, 1805, in present-day Montana. Sacagawea walks alongside expedition co-captain William Clark. In the river beside her, canoes filled with expedition members follow their lead. Together, they search anxiously for any sign of Captain Meriwether Lewis. For weeks, morale has been sinking. They needed to find the Shoshone Indians quickly, but their travel by water was slow. The fate of the expedition hinges on the Shoshone and their horses. Without them, there's no way the expedition can cross the Rocky Mountains before winter. Several days ago, Lewis and Clark split up, hoping to accelerate their search for the Shoshone. But reuniting has proven difficult. Members of the expedition are growing anxious, but Sacagawea can't help but savor the slow journey. Though she lives among the Hidatsa, Sacagawea belongs to the Shoshone tribe. When she was 12 years old, a Hidatsa raiding party captured her and took her thousands of miles away to the Hidatsa villages in North Dakota. It's there that Charbonneau purchased her, and she became one of his multiple wives. As Sacagawea scans the horizon for Lewis, 
The familiar landscape evokes memories of her childhood, and she wonders how much time she has left here before she will once again have to say goodbye to her native land. But the sound of horses interrupts Sacagawea's reflection. She cheers and breaks into dance as her eyes register several men on horseback. It's the Shoshone, and as the tribesmen draw near, Sacagawea notices they're traveling with one of the men Lewis took with him. Soon, Lewis's man leads Clark, Sacagawea, and the rest upriver, where Lewis is waiting to reunite with them and begin negotiations with the Shoshone. As they arrive at the Shoshone camp, Sacagawea immediately feels eyes on her. One young native girl weaves through the crowd of onlookers and walks right up to Sacagawea. As the girl draws near, recognition sets in. It's Sacagawea's childhood friend. They were together when Sacagawea was captured during the Hadassah raid, but the young girl managed to escape. Sacagawea holds her friend tight, determined that this time she will not let her go. But their reunion is interrupted by voices calling Sacagawea's name. Soon, Sacagawea heads to the tent where negotiations between Lewis and the tribe's chief are underway. Sacagawea quickly sits down to do her job as interpreter. But as she turns to speak to the chief, Sacagawea finds herself staring into the face of her own brother. Weeping profusely, Sacagawea hugs the first family member she's seen in years. Sacagawea's connection to the tribe will ingratiate Lewis and Clark to the Shoshone chief, who will provide horses and guides to lead the expedition over the Rocky Mountains. On November 15, 1805, 18 months after leaving St. Louis, the group finally reaches the Pacific Ocean, but their joy at arriving at their final destination will not last long. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the morning of March 22nd, 1806, at Fort Clatsop, the Corps of Discovery's wintertime fort on the Oregon coast. Captain Meriwether Lewis walks outside his cabin and looks up at the sky. It's been a long, miserable winter. Like everyone else, Lewis is eager to return home. But stormy conditions have made departure impossible. But today, the sky is crystal clear. Encouraged by the weather, Lewis and Clark agree to depart the next day. But Lewis knows the return trip will be dangerous. He fears that should they perish, the world will never know they made it to the coast. But right at this moment, Lewis sees a familiar face enter the camp, the chief of the Clatsop Indians, a tribe native to the region. The natives in this area have been eager to trade, but not to socialize, except for Chief Kobaway. He's been kind, friendly, and hospitable. So today, Lewis decides to make Kobaway an offer. His Clatsop tribe can take possession of their camp and all its furnishings after they're gone but Lewis needs something in return. Lewis hands Kobaway a list of all the names of the expedition's participants and asks the chief to keep it safe. Lewis explains that if they don't make it home, the world needs to know that they reached the Pacific. So with Kobaway's assurance that he will preserve the document, Lewis returns to his cabin, feeling more ready than ever to begin the journey back home. At noon the following day, the Corps of Discovery will finally leave Fort Clatsop beginning their trek home on March 23, 1806. 
With endurance and supplies severely depleted, the trek back east will be filled with fatigue and danger. But on September 23, 1806, seven months to the day after their departure from Fort Clatsop, the explorers arrive back in St. Louis. With their return, Lewis and Clark bring home new knowledge of the continent's geography and the transformative realization that land travel to the Pacific is possible. Soon, traders and empire builders will flood the West. Among them is a prominent fur trader and captain of the British Royal Navy named Alexander Henry. In 1813, Henry will visit Fort Clatsop and meet Chief Cobaway, who will present him with Lewis's list of the expedition's members, a document Cobaway safeguarded for seven years. But he watches with dismay as Henry throws the carefully preserved document into a fire. Henry's action portends the hostility of the imperial rivalries that will soon dominate the region, rivalries that will cause irreparable damage to the land's indigenous populations. Just a few decades after meeting Lewis and Clark, the Clatsop tribe will be forced to cede 90% of their land to the U.S. government, a tragic outcome to a story of exploration that entered a new chapter when Lewis and Clark began their return east on March 23, 1806. Next on History Daily, March 24, 1603, after a reign of 44 years, Queen Elizabeth I of England dies, bringing the Tudor dynasty to its end. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Derek Barons. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Alexandra Curry Buckner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a History Happy Hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. All right, y'all, guess what? One of my favorite true crime podcasts is coming out with an all-new season. But it's not the kind of true crime show that is filled with horrific murders or grim circumstances. It's one about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. And it is called, aptly, The Art of Crime. It's hosted by my friend and trained historian, Gavin Whitehead. Now, each season, Gavin centers the show around a different theme, like In his first season, it was Jack the Ripper, but season three is titled Queen of Crime, Madame Tussaud, and the Chamber of Horrors. And y'all, it's going to be telling two stories. First, it chronicles the great Madame's long and distinguished career, 
kicking off in pre-revolutionary France and wrapping up in Victorian London. Each episode covers a chapter in her biography, exploring her rise to fame as well as the earth-shaking historical events that she witnessed. Second, this season charts the evolution of the Chamber of Horrors, a special showroom in her wax museum that displayed effigies of notorious criminals. So y'all, I hope you will take a chance on Gavin's new season of The Art of Crime, because I'm not kidding when I tell you I'm actually a Patreon supporter of this show myself, and I just think he does such great work and has such a fresh approach to storytelling. So what are you waiting for? Go subscribe or follow or listen or whatever it is you're supposed to do to The Art of Crime. That is The Art of Crime. I hope y'all dig it. It's April 12, 1862, a year to the day since the outbreak of the American Civil War. A steam locomotive called the General charges north through the mountains of Georgia. Inside the cab, a 33-year-old Union spy, James J. Andrews, frantically checks the power gauge. He's running out of fuel and fast. A few days ago, James and a group of Union soldiers snuck inside Confederate territory and stole this train. Now they're headed north to rendezvous with Union troops in Chattanooga, but they still have 20 miles of track ahead of them. Now it seems the general is out of steam. James listens as the engine produces a series of sputtering last gasps before finally it gives out completely and the train comes to a stop. James is worried in no small part due to the fact that there's another locomotive on their trail. The pursuing train is loaded with heavily armed Confederate soldiers James's men have done their best to damage the track as they go, hopefully slowing their pursuers' progress. But there's no way of knowing how effective their sabotage has been. Now James must decide whether to stay and try to refuel or finish the journey on foot. But as he ponders his next move, James hears a distant whistle. When he sticks his head out of the window to look down the track behind him, he sees the Confederate train burst from the mouth of a dark tunnel, firing on all cylinders. James knows he and his men are out of options. Their only hope of avoiding capture is to abandon the general and scatter into the surrounding woods. When James J. Andrews orders his men to flee into the woods from the train they captured, he brought to an end one of the most remarkable events of the Civil War, an 87-mile high-speed rail chase through the mountains of northern Georgia. Some of the Union spies will be captured and executed, But the survivors will become the stuff of legends, and their exploits will go on to inspire books, television shows, and even Hollywood movies. A lasting cultural legacy of the great locomotive chase of April 12, 1862. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is April 12, 1862, the Great Civil War Locomotive Chase. 
It's April 1862 in southern Tennessee, a few days before the now-famous train chase. Inside his command tent, Major General Ormsby Mitchell of the Union Army scratches his chin as he studies a map of the surrounding region. The slight, wire-haired general is puzzling over a logistical problem, one that is beginning to seem intractable. For the past few weeks, Mitchell and his division have been advancing south from Nashville toward the town of Chattanooga. Chattanooga sits on the Western and Atlantic Railroad Line, a vital artery that links Tennessee with Georgia and keeps Confederate forces in constant supply of provisions and reinforcements. By capturing Chattanooga, Mitchell would be cutting off a critical Confederate supply line and perhaps bringing the war to an end. But while the railroad is still operational, taking Chattanooga seems like an impossible task. A steady influx of Confederate reserve troops makes any approach by a Union army feel like a suicide mission. Mitchell knows that to take Chattanooga, they first need to destroy the railroad. But with hundreds of miles of enemy territory surrounding the track on all sides, this task feels impossible too. Mitchell is wrenched from his deliberations by a tentative knock on the frame of his tent. Looking up, he discovers a bearded young man in civilian clothing. He introduces himself as James J. Andrews, an espionage agent for the Union Army. James says he believes he has a solution to General Mitchell's problem regarding the Western and Atlantic Railroad. Mitchell listens with interest as James explains his daring scheme. It involves leading a small unit of Union soldiers disguised as civilians behind Confederate lines to Georgia. There, they will hijack a train before driving it north, sabotaging the track along the route and leaving the path clear for Mitchell's forces to advance. It's a crazy scheme, but Mitchell is out of options and this might be his last hope. So the general agrees to support James' plan. General Mitchell helps source volunteers from his division, and the following day, James and his brave band of Union troops don civilian disguises and head off into Confederate territory. They know that if their cover gets blown, they'll be hanged as enemy spies. So to avoid attracting any unwanted attention, the saboteurs travel in small groups of two or three. When questioned at roadblocks, they claim to be Confederate sympathizers on their way to Atlanta to enlist. And slowly but surely, James and his men work their way south. All but two managed to avoid detection. And on April 11th, the remaining Union Raiders rendezvous in the town of Marietta, Georgia, where they hole up in a hotel for the night. After darkness has fallen, James stands at the window of his room, peering through a gap in the curtains. A sliver of moon hangs in the coal black sky, casting a pale glow across the train tracks not far from the hotel. At 33 years old, James's life so far has been one of aimless drifting. Before the war broke out, he was working odd jobs around Virginia and Kentucky. But following the outbreak of hostilities, James saw an opportunity to finally do something worthwhile. He became a spy for the Union, leading scouting missions behind Confederate lines. Still, he felt as if he had more to give. When he caught wind of General Mitchell's difficulties reaching Chattanooga, the idea for the train raid stuck James like a thunderbolt. Now, for the first time in his life, James believes he's exactly where he's supposed to be and that this is his destiny. But his men don't share his conviction. They've gathered and talked it over, and one of them explains to James that they're having doubts about tomorrow's raid. The venture is too ambitious. It's doomed to fail. James studies the men's expressions and admits the scheme is dangerous, maybe even foolhardy. Some of them may very well die. But James says this mission is far greater than the life of any one man. The future of the Union is at stake. Finally, James says, any man is free to drop out. But James insists he will press on and either succeed or leave his bones in Dixie. 
The men appear to be roused by James's speech, and the following morning, every last one of them reports for duty. Together, James and his men leave the hotel for the train station. On the platform, they split up and spread out among the civilian passengers, waiting for the locomotive of the general to arrive. When it finally pulls into the station, James and his men climb on board and disperse further so as not to arouse suspicion. James finds a car that's empty except for an elderly couple. He wishes good morning to his fellow travelers before sitting down in a window seat. Soon, the general pulls out of the station with a shrieking whistle and a billow of steam. James glances down and notices that his hand is trembling. He balls it into a fist and tries to steady his nerves. Soon, the train will arrive at the next station, where the driver has scheduled a 20-minute pit stop for breakfast. That's when the next stage of the plan will be set in motion, and the fate of the entire scheme, and perhaps the outcome of the Civil War itself, will be decided. It's almost six in the morning on April 12, 1862, in northern Georgia. James J. Andrews sits on board the General as it wends its way through the countryside. The Union spy gazes out at cotton fields whipping past the window. On the surface, James appears calm, but beneath his cool exterior, he's coiled as tightly as a spring. After a short journey, the train rolls to a stop in a cloud of hissing steam and smoke. They've arrived at Big Shanty, a small town just north of Atlanta. The conductor has scheduled his 20-minute pit stop here, an opportunity for the passengers and crew to disembark and eat some breakfast at a nearby hotel before continuing their journey north. James waits until the train is empty of passengers. Then he leaps into action. He removes the pistol tucked inside his belt and then rushes through the train to the engine room where three of his men are already waiting. James and the others begin firing up the coal furnace. They open the cylinders and pump the pistons with steam. Several other of James's men jump down from the train and detach the engine car, the coal tender, and three boxcars from the rest of the locomotive. They've been over this plan countless times, but the pressure they're feeling now is almost unbearable. The men work with the knowledge that the train's crew could glance over at any second and catch them red-handed. But meanwhile, in the nearby hotel, the general's conductor is happily eating his breakfast. 25-year-old William Fuller is a devout rebel who is proud to work for the Western and Atlantic Railroad, one of the vital suppliers for the Confederate Army. So William chews a biscuit, content in the knowledge that he's doing his part to achieve a victory for the South. But as he reaches for his coffee, William glances up absentmindedly at the train tracks through the window, and something unusual catches his eye. Several figures are moving around in the shadows between the boxcars, William watches as these figures duck beneath the train and vanish from view. The young conductor jumps to his feet and cries out with alarm. Somebody is hijacking his locomotive. William bolts from the hotel, followed swiftly by his engineer and another crew member. The three members chase after the general on foot, but it's no use. The locomotive leaves the station, picks up speed, and pulls away until it's just a speck in the distance. But William and his colleagues don't give up. They continue chasing the train on foot until they come across a hand car. William climbs on board and begins furiously working the crank. As they slowly make their way along the track, they pass severed telegraph wires and stretches of gnarled, twisted rail. Seeing this, William suspects that the train thieves are northern soldiers attempting to disable the railroad, likely ahead of a Union Army advance. But whatever these men are up to, William is determined to thwart them. 
As the conductor of the general, the locomotive was stolen under his watch, and therefore it's his responsibility to get it back. But his arms are growing weary. Sweat drips from every pore, and he knows he'll never catch them in a slow-moving handcar. Just about then, William sees something up ahead that lifts his spirits, a train abandoned by the side of the track. The three Confederate men race to the locomotive and climb inside. She's rusty and old, but functional, and considerably faster than the handcar. So they fire her up and push her as fast as she'll go. A few hours later, William and his colleagues pull into a rail depot. There they stop a southbound train, the Texas, and exchange their old junker for this faster vehicle. Though the tracks they're riding on are only built to accommodate speeds of 18 miles per hour, William drives the Texas at 70 miles per hour in reverse. With whistles blowing, smoke billowing, and steel wheels screaming along the rails, the Confederate train races after the general until they're just minutes apart. Union spy James J. Andrews blinks sweat from his eyes and screams at his men to push her, boys, push her. But the train is running out of fuel. They're still about 30 miles from Chattanooga, and the enemy train is gaining on them. Up ahead, James spies a rail bridge approaching. Seeing this, an idea strikes him, one that could be his final chance to shake off their pursuers. He orders his men to set fire to the train's coal tender and then detach it from the locomotive. Once it's done, James watches a blazing rail car recede into the distance, hoping that the burning coal spill out and set the wooden bridge on fire. If that doesn't stop his pursuers, James will be out of ideas, the general will be out of fuel, and their ambitious scheme will be doomed to end in failure. It's the afternoon of April 12, 1862, in the woods of northern Georgia. James J. Andrews scampers through the dense forest, the thorny branches whipping his face and tearing at his clothes. Close behind him, he can hear the footsteps and raised voices of his rebel pursuers as they run through the woods after him and his fellow Union raiders. But James finds himself slowing down, wincing with discomfort. He must have sprained his ankle leaping from the train. And now that the adrenaline is wearing off, the pain is becoming intense. Shortly after James's attempt to burn the bridge, his train ran out of fuel. The general passed through a tunnel and rolled to a stop. Moments later, the pursuing rebel train burst through the mouth of the same tunnel, and James realized that his last-ditch effort to stall the Confederates had failed. Left with no other choice, he ordered his men to jump from the train and scatter on foot. Now, alone in the woods, James hopes that his men avoid capture and somehow make it back to Union territory unscathed. But he's finding it hard to run on his sprained ankle. Thinking fast, James climbs a tree and hides among the leaves. Moments later, a group of Confederate soldiers pass by. One of them, a young, dark-haired man with a patchy beard, is wearing the uniform of a train conductor. James holds his breath and waits until this search party is well out of earshot before climbing down the tree and setting off in the opposite direction. At the first opportunity, he turns north. But James never reaches Union territory. Within days, he, along with the rest of the Union raiders, are rounded up and transported back to Atlanta. After it's determined that James is the ringleader of the scheme, he is convicted of sabotage and sentenced to death. On June 7, 1862, James and seven of the more senior raiders are hanged as Union spies. The remaining men, mostly younger recruits, 
are locked up in a Confederate prisoner of war camp where they're expected to languish for the remainder of the conflict. But shortly after their incarceration, the Union men manage to escape from the POW camp. Eight of them make it to Union territory, while the rest are caught once again and brutally punished. Later in the war, these recaptured Union soldiers are released as part of a prisoner exchange. But their story is so remarkable that the U.S. Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, feels moved to honor their service with a brand new award, one recently approved by Congress. Stanton is especially touched by one particular prisoner who was tortured during his time in captivity. So in March of 1863, Secretary Stanton makes this soldier the first ever recipient of the Medal of Honor. Shortly after, most of the remaining raiders are also presented with the same distinction. The attempted theft of the general will go down in history as one of the most remarkable events of the Civil War. Today, at the Chattanooga National Cemetery in Tennessee, a bronze statue of the steam locomotive of the general stands as a memorial to the thrilling 87-mile journey and to the brave men who dared to attempt the great locomotive chase of April 12, 1862. Next on History Daily, April 13, 1970, an oxygen tank explodes on Apollo 13, leaving the spacecraft crippled and the lives of the crew in peril. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Mohammed Shazi. Sound design by Molly Bach. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Y'all, my friends Howard and Jessica of Plotting Through the Presidents have just started their new season, and you need to go check it out. The first episode is called The John Adams Diet. And no, before you get any ideas, this ain't a health podcast based on the eating habits of our nation's leaders. It is a deeply researched, albeit humorous, storytelling show that explores the lesser-known tales of the early presidents, the founders, and even their families. From the real reason Alexander Hamilton and John Adams hated each other to the truth behind Ben Franklin's naughty reputation. They've even covered stuff as wild as the story of John Quincy Adams and the mole people to Winston Churchill's nude White House encounter with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, the Bell Witch makes an appearance when they're talking about old hickory. So y'all, Go follow Plotting Through the Presidents to plot along with Howard and Jess and check out plodpod.com for links to your favorite podcast app and, of course, to dive into their past bingeable seasons. That's plodpod.com.